You sing it. Candy share. Hmm. Candy share. Hmm. Candy share. Okay. Sharing is caring. Oh, sharing is fun. We can all share together. Be kind to everyone. Can we share? Can we share? We can share. Okay. <laughs> Sharing is care. Oh, share is fun. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Hot Marriage Cool Parents. I'm your host, Jamie Otis. My lovely co-host, Douglas Hayner, is out picking up some furniture. So as you know, we have moved to this new house in Florida. It is completely unfurnished and we are trying to slowly furnish it, but also in an affordable way. And so I've been searching thrift stores and I looked on this site called OfferUp and I found this Pottery Barn leather sofa for $100. And he is on his way to go hopefully make it fit into the car, which is an SUV and we don't have a truck. So we will see how this works. But in the meantime, it's just you and me, girlfriend. I am here with you, chatting with you, giving you the update and sharing the most inspirational story. Our guest today, her name is Mary Morantz and she has such an inspiring story. Girlfriend grew up in a trailer just like I did. And her dad raised her and she went off to an Ivy League school and has become very, very successful. And she's just written a book. It's called Dirt. And she's sharing just about her life and about that book. But I'm so excited to have that interview for you later. That was pre-recorded, So Doug was on it with me. But first thing I have got to tell you, oh my gosh. First of all, Hendrix is four months old now. And I'm like, how... <laughs> How is he four months old? I mean, he babbles, he drools, he can almost turn over. And I feel like at this point, Gracie could turn over. And I wonder if it's like the case of the second child where inevitably he gets like half the attention that our first child got at this stage because we have another child. And that's like what I kind of feared with having more than one child is just obviously your attention gets split. And I'm trying not to have like the mom guilt because what are you going to do? The best thing I could give her is a sibling. I mean, Doug and I aren't going to last forever, but her brother will be here on earth with her hopefully as long as she is. And so I don't know. It's like all those hormones are still like racing all through my body. And I'm like, I genuinely think when I'm done nursing, maybe then I'll have a sane and sound mind and body. <laughs> like I don't feel sane half the time. Like I'm constantly worried about things, but I'm not even going to talk about that because no one wants to hear about that. So the other thing though, like before I get off Hendrix is that it seems like he's getting a bit of a flat head and it's really concerning to me because of course I don't want him to have a flat head. And it's just frustrating because they say back is best. So of course, like I have him sleep on his back because of course I don't want him to like suffocate or die from SIDS or anything of that nature. So of course I have him swaddled up on the back. And now I'm like, Doug, does his head look flat? And Doug's like, oh, that could be questionable. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, great. And on that note, like I told Doug that his one job when we got here was if he could just get Hendrix and Gracie, a pediatrician, like call and make sure that that all gets taken care of. Cause I am just working real hard and it was like, please, can you just take that off my hands? And now Hendrix is four months old and doesn't have a pediatrician appointment. So, um, you know, 
but Doug is also working really, really hard and he has found someone. They just haven't gotten back to us yet. So, you know, it's not like he hasn't done anything. He just forgot because he is like, honestly, he's such a great dad and it's not at all that. But I'm just the kind of person that I just... I don't know. I just like make things happen. I'm like, Doug, I would have driven there. If they're not answering my emails, if they're not moving fast enough, then you go there in person and you tell them what you need done. But Doug is just way chiller than I am. And he's like, oh yeah, they haven't gotten back to me yet. Yeah, I left a voicemail. They haven't returned it. I'm like, what? You go and show them, you know, they tell them what <laughs> what needs to be done. So anyways, he's just chiller than I am. But I can't wait for Hendrix to go to the doctor's appointment because I'm dying to know how much he weighs. Like he was 16 pounds, four ounces, I believe at his three month checkup. He's got to be 18 pounds now. I mean, there's just not a chance this kid could be less than 18 pounds. I mean, I would say 20, but that's being a bit dramatic. <laughs> I think he's probably only like 18, but he's just such a big, big boy and he is definitely a redhead. But yeah, so by next week, whether it's me going in there and being like, you will see my son, he needs a pediatrician. <laughs> or if it's Doug being patient, he's going to have his four-month checkup for sure. And I'll share with you exactly how much he weighs because I'm also dying to know. But thing about Florida so far that I find a bit interesting and I wasn't exactly expecting, and I guess this is a bit naive of me, but I'll tell you what, it has rained every single afternoon since we've been here. We got here at the end of August and now it's in September and it rains every single day every single day. And you know, like yesterday, for example, we live in a development now. There is a park nearby. I want to get active. I know that working out or being active is so good for mental health. And I know girlfriend knows I need that. <laughs> and so I'm like, let me take the kids for a walk. They'll love it. I'll take them to the park. It's only half a mile away. So I can just walk there. And that's like a mile walk. They're having fun. No joke. Halfway there, it starts downpouring. And when Florida rains, at least where we are in Sarasota, I don't know if it's like this for the whole state, but like when it rains, it pours and it's like relentless. And so I swear to goodness, the blue cloudy sky turned to like dark gray clouds within like a minute. And then it was like pouring. And I'm literally pushing the kids as fast as I can in this stroller. And it's not a jogger stroller. It's a nice light white, like Zoe stroller. And thank God I brought a blanket and thank God the stroller is waterproof because they didn't get like drenched or anything. The only person who got drenched was me, <laughs> which was actually, I don't know. It was kind of fun. Like, you know, it's just like you live life once. Who cares? You get a little rain on you. I mean, we've started to even let Gracie just play in the rain because there was another time that we promised her, promised her, promised her we'd take her to the park. And by the time we get to the park, what do you know? Like literally two seconds later, it starts raining. And of course, everyone's like running off of the park. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let her play in the rain and I'm going to play in the rain with her because why not? And I'll tell you why not. <laughs> My dress was so soaked. I literally had to take it off before I got inside the car because I would have just drenched the seats. Like I would have <laughs> ruined the car, but it was fun. I mean, she had fun and I don't know, I'm trying to be a bit more chill and not so uptight about like silly things like getting wet, you know, like it's like she's so young. Young and she loves jumping in the puddle. So I'm like, okay, I guess I can do that. But anyways, like I was telling you, the only furniture we really have here is a bunch of baby toys. They have like more toys than you can imagine because I mean, that's mom's sanitary, sanitary, <laughs> sanity. I mean, I would much rather have them have all the gizmos and gadgets and we sit, I'm literally sitting on the floor right now as I'm podcasting this. But like I said, I would much rather them have all the places to play and sit and do things because then I can sit on the floor in peace 
and I'm okay with that. (laughs) But yeah, like I'll tell you what it looks like right now where I'm podcasting. I have two suitcases that I'm going to clean as soon as I get done chatting with you. I'm going to clean this room up. If you're following me on Instagram, I'm going to do a story of a before and after because then maybe I'll actually get to the after. (laughs) It like holds myself accountable because we've been living out of suitcases since we've been here. I mean, it's really kind of like no good reason for it at this point. I mean, at first I was traveling for work and we both are working full time, but it's like, okay, girl, come on, (laughs) clean up the clothes. So that's what I'm going to be doing after I get done chatting with you. But before I start that, I have got to tell you, Gracie starts her first day of pre-K tomorrow. Oh my gosh, my little baby girl starting pre-K. So we weren't sure if we were going to enroll her in school or not because, you know, COVID, she's only three. So it's not like she has to be in school. Just like not sure what the best option is. And we bought these like starting school workbooks and numbers and letters and all the things. And I'm like, ay, ay, ay. Like it is so hard. God bless you mamas out there who have like kids who are actually learning, like they're in like fifth grade or something and you actually have to homeschool them because it is no joke. And all the teachers in the world deserve such a big raise because it is so hard. I don't know if it's because we're her parents. I don't know. I can't like figure out why we can't just like teach our kid for like longer than two minutes. I mean, she gets distracted. She screams, she yells. I just think she really enjoys having a teacher. She likes the structure of going to school. God knows I love it when she's at school and she has structure and comes home and she's happy because she's like been someplace other than the same four walls that we've all been staring at for for weeks now. And since it's safe and they have strict COVID precautions at the school, I like went and toured it. It's a Montessori school. I met the, you know, like multiple different teachers, not even just her teacher. I saw like all the classrooms they have. It's actually a school from like pre-K all the way up to 12th grade. And of course, as I'm touring, they're like, yeah, and this could be a great school all the way throughout. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I can afford that, but thanks. (laughs) But also like we're probably going to be in Jersey or at least Doug would prefer to be in New Jersey. I actually don't mind being in Florida for her for school just because the school is like fall, winter and spring. And I would much rather be in Florida where it's sunny and warm and rains every day, apparently, (laughs) than any place where there's snow. Like I just, I'd much rather vacation at a place that's snowy and live in someplace warm. Oh my gosh, that is... Uh, that's like my dream. So we'll see if I get my way. <laughs> but um, if not, you know, there's also perks to being in New Jersey. I mean, we do already like really miss having his parents around and, you know, my sister and brother-in-law and all of Gracie's and Hendrix's cousins. I mean, there's perks to both. So we'll see. But that's about it on our updates. There's not a whole lot more, but I wanted to quickly give the five-star reviewer a shout out because we actually only had one this past week. And that really like made me focus on her and want to give her a huge shout out and just thank her for, you know, leaving a review for us because it really does mean a lot to us and we don't always get tons of them. But, you know, last week, like I said, we just only had one, but we had one and I'm so thankful for that. And that is from Rune37. She says, Christmas time. Um, The cutest Christmas lisp was the best thing ever. Smarty pants, you're going to love hearing that when she's 20. And she's talking about Henley in her little Christmas lisp. She does have the cutest little lisp. She has this overbite in her mouth and she puts her tongue on her teeth when she talks sometimes. And so it'd be like Christmas, Christmas is like how she talks. And it's just so, so cute. 
But anyways, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Mary Morant in that interview. And like I said, Rune37, thank you so much for that five-star review because you are the only one to leave us one. So thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. All right, we'll bring Mary on now. Mary Morant, author, speaker, and podcast host is our guest today. She grew up in a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia. The first of her immediate family to go to college, she went on to earn a law degree from the nation's top ranked law school, Yale. (laughs) After ditching her six figure salary law firm offers in London and New York, she started a business with her hubby, Justin. Together, they have built a successful online education platform for creative entrepreneurs. And she is also the host of the highly ranked and popular podcast, The Mary Morant Show. Mary will release her first book, Dirt, Growing Strong Roots and What Makes the Broken Beautiful in September. I am so excited to have you on, Mary. I feel like we have very similar paths, except I didn't go to Yale, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you guys so, so much for having me on. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. And I I mean, this is just, it's a huge honor. So thank you so much. Oh my gosh. It's an honor for us to have you. And you guys also have something in common. You have great husbands. That's right. We do. That's right. We so do. They're like the ones who uh, hold it all together, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I know you have a book out about your journey. Well, actually, it's not out yet, but by the time this airs, it's probably going to be out. And so Mm -hmm. I know your book, Dirt, it's about your journey and you talk largely on your past and growing up in a trailer park. And like I said, I had a very similar childhood. I grew up in a single wide trailer park, like (laughs) multiple different ones because we moved a lot. So I know Mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to break away from you know, your family, like the past, I guess, and especially when there's a cycle of generations of just kind of trying to like make it, you know, paycheck to paycheck kind of thing. What made you go down a different path? Um, Jamie, I have to ask you first, like, where was the trailer that you grew up in? So I really did move around an awful lot. We lived in a lot of different Mm -hmm. trailer parks, but we lived in one in Ithaca, New York. We lived in one Mm -hmm. in Freeville, New York. We lived in, we lived in one in Groton. We lived in lots of different trailer parks. Well, you know, what's interesting about that? And that's, it's something that was on my heart a lot when I was writing Dirt is that with poverty in particular, it's a very complex issue. And where I'm from is West Virginia. And so that's Appalachia. There's this tension between poverty and pride. And like, if you asked anybody in my family, if you asked my dad, if you asked my mom, you know, were we in poverty? They would be like, of course not. What are you talking about? Like, we had love, we had food on the table, like we're not poverty. And something I was very aware of in writing this book is with poverty, it's so easy to go. Poverty is an over there problem. Poverty is a them versus us. And actually, I mean, the places you just mentioned are in New York and Connecticut. Uh, Groton, Connecticut, is that where you meant? Uh, No, also upstate New York. But yeah, like in New York State, which a lot of people just think New York State, New York City, and they think Manhattan and wealth, and it's just not the case. Yeah. And so like for me, it was very important in DIRT to do two things. One, it was to include a family. I call them the Baptist family that live not five miles from us, but an entirely world away in that they had the beautiful two-story house that you would probably recognize in your own neighborhood. And I would recognize in mine now. And so it does two things. It says anywhere you are, poverty is probably not more than a few miles away from you, or at least like somewhere in your state. And also everything you think you know about Appalachia, I might check some of those boxes because that was a real tension point for me is people in Appalachia are so fatigued and exhausted from being painted as the single wide trailer and the truck on blocks and the stray dogs in the yard. You know, somebody was a logger or a coal miner and Scotch-Irish descent. But for me, Mm -hmm. this is a memoir. It's a true story. So 
my story does check a lot of those boxes and I couldn't change that. So it was really important to me to show both sides, like things you think you know about Appalachia, not always true. And also wherever you're from, poverty is probably in your backyard somewhere. And so just to kind of touch on that too. So as a young girl that would go away to college, was your background something that you started to hide behind or was it something that you kind of wore on your sleeve? Mm, Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I think it's a process. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the kind of like punchline of dirt and sort of the punchline, you know, for me in particular, feeling like, man, God's really got a good sense of humor is that I wanted so badly to get away from the trailer. I wanted so badly to have like the who's the boss house, you know, I grew up in the eighties. So it was like, who's the (laughs) boss and full house were like the epitome of success. And I wanted to run from that trailer. And in a twist of irony, writing about the trailer was actually what was a huge reason that I got into Yale for law school. And so this thing I thought that was going to like keep me stuck, it became this remarkable thing that started opening doors. Wow. That's really interesting. You say that writing about the trailer got you into Yale. How did that happen? Well, I mean, I think that once you start getting to the level of you're applying to some of the top law schools, most of the people applying at that point have similar grades. They have similar LSAT scores. You know, they were the high achievers of their undergrad, wherever that was. And so now these admissions counselors are looking really hard that the people that are going to make up the student body are bringing to the table very different viewpoints and very different experiences. And I think, you know, probably one of the things that was lacking, you know, I certainly wasn't the only person who had this kind of story, but there was a certain lack of a uh, grew up poor kind of mentality or grew up in a yeah, that demographic. rural area. Yeah. So I feel like I brought a viewpoint and a world experience to the table that was very different than maybe a lot of my classmates had. I didn't go to a private school for high school or for undergrad. I was at WVU for my undergrad. So I think there is, you know, my dad's a logger. Like he started out logging in the woods using horses. Like that's insane to me. So I definitely brought just this different way of seeing Mm -hmm. the world. You know, I just want to circle back just a wee bit in case everyone who's listening doesn't know an awful lot about the way you grew up in your past, because I think it's really important to touch on that. So could you give us a little bit, you know, I'm sure you explained thoroughly in your book, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your past in the trailer and like Mm -hmm. your dad being a logger and things. And it's interesting that you had already mentioned, you know, how first and foremost, I want to put it out there that it's not bad to live in a trailer. And as a matter of fact, it is so much wiser to live in a home that you can afford Mm. and have food on the table and heat and whatnot than to like try to keep up with the Joneses and live in some, I don't know, some other home that you just really can't afford. And it's true that a trailer is such a home. Like it doesn't, it's not a bad home. And I know that probably maybe someone listening lives in a trailer and that's not Mm. a bad thing. The very first home I ever bought was a trailer because I knew that that was all I could afford while I was taking care of my siblings. So there is seriously zero shame in living in a trailer. But I know that a lot of people who live in it, I mean, there's a stigma associated to it. It's not necessarily, you know, the fanciest home. We all know that. But also, I mean, it is what it is. If you're living in it, you got to be proud. And, you know, and I definitely was. So that being said, I would love to hear more about, you know, kind of your upbringing and whatnot. Oh, wow, Jamie, you are fascinating. I'm like the podcast host in me is like, oh, I just want to ask you all the questions. Holy cow. (laughs) Taking care of your siblings. Like that feels like a really powerful story right there. Um, Yeah, you know, so it was a single wide trailer in the book dirt. I talk about there's this certain element of like, the decisions that we make and how they they stick with us. And so specifically what I mean is my mom was, mm, I'm going to say 15 when my parents started dating. She was 17 when they got married. 
they lived with my grandparents the first couple of years when my mom had kind of had enough. She actually left. Well, she had given him an ultimatum first. I think like we need to get our own place or I'm leaving. And the time came and passed. And so she left for a couple of weeks and then he came and got her and said, come home. And she said, to what home? And he was like, to this trailer I just bought for us. It's going to be temporarily put on his parents, my grandma Goldie and grandpa Bill's land just for now, where it still sits to this day. You know, and so it was kind of this kind of everything you were just talking about, Jamie, there was this rush to get their own place and have their independence. And so they just kind of did this like just for now kind of quick fix. And I ended up living in that trailer from zero to 18. And my dad lived there a few years after until my grandma Goldie passed away and he inherited her house next door. And so there is this certain element of like, it was not only a single wide trailer, but then I don't know if any of the trailers you were in did this more was like a thing to do, but one of the things to do to make your trailer take it up a level is you build on kind of like a lean to addition and bonus room. Yes. And that's like a little bit, you know, nicer in theory, but it was just built by, I mean, my mom probably like built a good bit of it. It was just, they sort of built it in their spare time with whatever wood was around. So it's all mismatched wood and a flat roof. And the trailer had a flat roof, which meant they started leaking at a certain point. Mm. It's just like a tin roof. Water would just pour through. I mean, it would pour, if it was raining outside, I say it's raining just as hard inside. And I kind of mean that, like by the time it all gathered, it was just like gushing through. I always say my people are the people who know what a piece of drywall looks like. That's so soaked just before it caves in. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know what that looks like. you can spot a water stain on a ceiling so fast. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, And, you know, gosh, like the roof was leaky, which meant that the floor got really soggy and then started caving in. And we actually had like mushrooms growing through the carpet and like we'd have stray animals inside. What? Animal droppings and like all sorts of crazy stuff like that. And so. That's dinner for some. I got to say, mushrooms on the carpet never happened to me. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, they're wet and then they they get warm yep. and that makes a good environment to grow mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the ceiling was caved in, the floor was caved in, the whole place smelled like mildew. Your clothes smelled like mildew. The old wood stove that was in the, the bonus room, that source of heat, like it wasn't attached to the ceiling. So orange flames would shoot out and like lick the edge of the pink panther and, you know, fluffs of insulation hanging down. So it was kind of this like, I don't know, like Wild West sort of childhood. I grew up in the 80s. So like you'd leave at dawn and run and play all, you know, summer. And as long as you were back by like bedtime, that was fine. (laughs) And because we had a logging company, there was, you know, dozers in the yard and for a while, 18 wheeler trucks and pickup trucks on blocks. And we had a gold thunderbird trans am um tons of stray animals just constantly like a revolving door stray animal so in a certain way um you know i actually just did an episode where i interviewed ashley york who's the director of hillbilly which i think you would love her so we were talking about how this original imagery we get when you think of poverty aesthetic or um you know a lot of times people will call it kind of like poverty porn like if you can show this like gratuitous image of poverty, then you can like manipulate people. And so it was talking about how a lot of that original like 1950s imagery of poverty, it was interesting that most of it, whether photo or video, was actually shot through the glass of a car, a moving car going by. So it's like poverty is over there on the other side of the glass where it can't get me. And I'm sort of like observing it from a distance, almost like a zoo exhibit. And so there started to become this like poverty is them. It's not me. And I had to kind of balance with, well, gosh, how am I going to tell this story, like I mentioned, when all of these boxes are getting checked, you know, and like, I'm going to lead, actually, that was the decision. I'm going to lead with what you think you already know about Appalachia and people who grew up in trailers. 
And then that's going to take up the first two chapters. We're going to spend the rest of the book telling you what you don't know about the kind of people who grow up with stories like that and who we become, not the Yale Law graduate, but the kinder, more empathetic, grit-filled, tenacity-filled, take-care-of-our-siblings kind of people. So that was sort of the balance. It was everything you probably imagined, but it was also a lot of stuff you don't even know. Wow. And so um, the question that I have for you, Mary, is did you ever feel out of place going to college in Yale? I mean, leaving home just for anybody is scary, especially, mm-hmm. you know, you're completely changing your life and changing cultures. But going from a trailer to Yale, for anybody that may be scared to leave their current situation, whether it's bad, poor, happy, what advice do you have to get over that hump and to go and find that motivation? You know what? I can make it in Yale. You know what? I can go from a trailer. I can go to college. I can make it in Yale. And it doesn't matter my background. What advice do you have for anybody that's going through that now? Okay, before we get to that, I've got to tell you about this. Did you know that there is a Disney Hits playlist every single place that you stream? So whether you're on Pandora or Spotify or wherever you listen to your music, you can listen to all of your all-time favorite Disney music any time of the day, anywhere. So enjoy the magic of Disney music anytime, anywhere. The Disney Hits playlist features all of your favorite Disney songs. All you simply got to do is say, Alexa, play Disney Hits or stream Disney Hits on your favorite music service and let the magic of Disney music bring a smile to your face and warm your heart. Disney Hits, the happiest playlist on earth. Uh, it's so funny because Henley loves dancing and she loves singing. And so she will literally grab our podcast like mics and she'll come in this room, which is going to be our guest room one day whenever we furnish it. But she'll come in here and we'll have this Disney Hits playlist music just playing because she'll just start singing along to it and putting on a little show. And it's just the cutest thing ever. And it really is like, I know that's our slogan, the happiest playlist on earth, but it really does like make you happy when you start listening to Disney music. So yeah, if you want to enjoy the magic of Disney music anytime, anywhere, you can even just say, Alexa, play Disney Hits. And then you can listen to all your favorite Disney music. So I just wanted to make sure that you know about that. And we'll get back to Mary now. Yeah, such such a good question, Doug. Um, the first thing I'll say is I absolutely struggled with that. Like I mentioned, I went to WVU for my undergrad, but I almost didn't because I can very clearly to this day remember the moment I was standing in the guidance counselor's office and there was a poster on her wall. It showed Woodburn Hall, which is like the building on WVU's campus that you really recognize. And it had like all these charts about like in-state tuition, out-state tuition, average grades. We took the ACT, not the SAT. And then it said number of students enrolled and it said 22,000. Wow. And I grew up in a town that maybe had 2,000 <laughs> if everybody came down from the mountains, you know, and like hung out in town for a day. And I immediately was like, nope, not going to do that. Like I will fail out for sure. I will be number 22,001 in that ranking. And In Dirt, I talk about, I don't know exactly what happens, but there is something about people who grew up either poor or in hard circumstances where in our brains, we start to carry these beliefs about we will fail before we even begin. Yes. And we are disqualified and we, Mm -hmm. you know, it just doesn't work out for people like us. And at the same time, that part of our brain is doing battle with this other part of our brain that's like, but I have to go have a different outcome to make all of this make sense. I have to be the Mm -hmm. one to get out. I have to keep pushing forward. 
And so the reason I ended up going to WVU is it was the only school in the state that had a law program, that had a law school. And at the time I thought you went to the same law school where you went to your undergrad. I didn't know that you could switch in between. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to WVU then. And so it was like this battle between the part of me that wanted to become the girl after the trailer and the part of me that was still that girl in the trailer thinking, this doesn't work out for people like us. Like, of course, all those other 22,000 kids coming from different places would be more qualified than I am. So that's the first part is I absolutely struggled with that and forget about the first time we pulled up to Yale Law School in my dad's muddy pickup truck. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I was afraid to even go in that first visit. I just looked in through the window from the outside. And I think for me, like that's been a big part of the journey is like I went through a very, very long part of my life thinking if I could just achieve enough, if I could just get enough gold stars, if I could just get enough pretty clothes that I was the first one who bought them, you know, if I could just mark all of these boxes, then when people look at me, they won't know. And so I always say, I kind of wrote dirt for the most put together woman in the room. She's the woman that when you look at her, you would never guess that she came from the trailer or that she came from the hard story. And none of that worked. (laughs) Spoiler (laughs) alert, none of that worked. And there was a realization for me of like, man, if getting into the number one law school in the country wasn't going to make this junk go away, this hole in my heart that always felt like something was lacking go away, then I guess I'm going to have to actually go back and start doing the hard work of healing and figuring out why I felt so disqualified. And a big part of that story we can probably get into is that my mom did leave when I was little. She left when I was nine. And so a big part of Dirt is like that reconciliation story between me and her as well. But to answer your question, I feel like it's absolutely something to feel. It's absolutely something to be okay with being nervous about. But I actually just had a friend of mine, we were on the cheerleading squad together and her son, he's a junior in high school and he's getting courted by the Ivy Leagues for football. And she, you know, sent me a private message and she was like, hey, I just need to know, like, is he going to get picked on if he goes to one of these schools? Is he going to feel completely out of place? And what I said to her was, I held people at arm's length because I was ready for them to reject me. And the truth is I rejected them before they ever had a chance and it was never even a problem. Oh my goodness, Mary. I honestly feel like you're speaking my language, but in a different sense. Like, I don't know if you know, but I went on The Bachelor when I was like very young. I was 23 years old, I believe. And when you say you rejected them before they even had a chance to reject you, that is exactly what I did with my experience there because these girls Mm -hmm. all seemed so beautiful and model-esque and intelligent. And I had just graduated from a two-year school because that's all I could afford and had my siblings at home in my trailer, you know, back in Mm -hmm. my trailer park where I lived. And so I didn't feel like I belonged there whatsoever. And just like you said, like I held them at arm's length, which comes off as like, as if I was rejecting them. Meanwhile, all I wanted was their love and acceptance, but I came off as snooty. And I mean, I don't think I came off like that to everybody, but like I didn't make a lifelong friend there that I'm like super close with and making lifelong friends are really, really hard because it takes opening up that vulnerable part of you where you don't feel like you're qualified to even share. And this is, got to tell you, I cannot wait to read this book. (laughs) I'm like so excited to read your story, Mary. I mean, they're so very inspiring. Quick question for you, you know, talking about how you grew up and whatnot, what would you want to say to the young Mary growing up in the trailer who is kind of wanting to break the cycle, but doesn't have the confidence, doesn't feel like she's qualified to. What would Mm. you say to that young Mary and to honestly, to some listeners, you know, right now who may be in that position, whether they're young or old or any age, really? Yeah. Oh man, gosh, so many things, but I'll pick two really big ones. One of them is that 
very, very many times, and this may be something that somebody listening right now is feeling, we look at our story and we think, if I could snap my fingers or find a genie in a lamp to grant a wish and swap stories with this other person over here that I'm looking at from the outside, I would do that in a second. And I felt that a million times growing up with my friend who was from the Baptist family. I mean, they had the nice house, they had the pool, they had, she got a car when she turned 16, she got to go clothes shopping every year. And their home was just warm and clean and safe and beautiful. And I was like, I don't know, seventh grade through senior year, I would have swapped places with her in a second. And so often we're looking at our lives that we feel like we know the ending. It is a foregone conclusion. And what we don't know is if we zoom out a little bit further, that's just like the first page or just a chapter or something. And if we had any idea what we would miss out on if somebody did grant that wish or we could snap our fingers, you know, it would terrify us that we even came that close to missing out on things. What if that wish had been granted? You know, all the stuff I would have missed out on. You can talk about that in terms of accolades, like Yale Law School and all that stuff, but also just like meeting my husband, finding this condemned house (laughs) by the water that we've spent 10 years renovating. There's this part, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I'm gonna give it to you guys. Um, There's this part in the book where I talk about, we found our first house and it had been flooded and in foreclosure and everything. And when we walked in, it smelled like mildew. And I felt like, well, I'm home. Cause like I grew up in mildew. And so it was kind of this like full circle moment where we find this house and bring it back to life. And it has a real roof. That's a real big driving point is getting to a home that has a real roof. Yeah. Um, that's a component of it is I would say to my younger self, uh, you don't know the whole story yet. You're reading one sentence and like throwing away the whole book and it gets really good. Just keep reading. <laughs> I and love the other that. thing I would say is assume it works out. I would say this to myself today yeah, as we're getting that's ready good to advice. launch this book. Assume it works out. Just assume that with enough time and with enough luck and with enough hard work, assume it works out. Assume that the ending you want is already there. Assume that's happened. And now try to enjoy the process. Try to enjoy the journey because what's going to happen is you're going to get so stressed out and you've spent the last year or the last months completely stressed out and not enjoying a single minute of it. So like, I think if you can kind of get to that place of like, assume that most of the things you're going to try for, you're going to get pretty close to, it allows you to not spend your whole life waiting to get to there where there doesn't really exist. And you can actually enjoy your life while you're living it. Oh, that's such, such good advice. I yeah, absolutely you, love you always it. say, put it out into the universe. Yeah, that's like basically mm-hmm. like manifesting that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mary, there's a really beautiful part about where you talk about becoming and kind of building something more and how that can sometimes feel like a betrayal to the people Mm, you're around or who raised you. Did you have support from your family when you were going away? And I guess maybe if you can talk a little bit about that Mm -hmm. with that struggle. You know, what's interesting is like I was mentioning about being really like, oh gosh, how am I ever going to go to WVU? I'll just do the community college, which had like 1500 students in it. And my dad was one of the loudest voices in my life being like, nope, it's WVU or nothing. Like you got to go, you got to (laughs) go big, you got to make it happen. And then I did, and I'm spending my four years at WVU. And then I actually started applying for scholarships to study in England for a year and got the acceptance call that I got one of the scholarships a week after September 11th. And so calling my dad and who like at this point, anything outside the undulating heartbeat of a boundary that's West Virginia was (laughs) the dangerous world, you know? So calling him and being like, hey, guess what? I'm going to go fly across an ocean right after this happened and spend a year away from you. Like he was not a fan at all. So I would say he was a fan of doing more as long as it didn't leave the state. And then the second it was like, go to England or apply to schools outside of 
West Virginia for law school, he was not the biggest fan because it meant I wasn't going to be within arm's reach. He couldn't get to me if something bad happened. He couldn't protect me. He did eventually, you know, get on board with that, getting the call from Yale when they called Grandma Goldie's house on the top of Fenwick Mountain, (laughs) the dean of Yale Law School. Um, I think that kind of helped bring them around a little bit. But when I talk about that betrayal, there's a saying that people sometimes say, not a lot of people, but I've heard people in my more extended family say, you're acting higher than you're raising. Yeah. Which is just kind of like a way of saying you want more than what you had growing up. And therefore you're like insulting Mm -hmm. what you had growing up. And kind of for me, I always felt like it had this implied ceiling that you could expect to achieve. You know, you were were born into this world in a certain place, which meant you're only going a certain distance. And I feel like um, there is this tension between leaving a place and loving a place and leaving without saying there was something so wrong about where you started. And so What's cool about my story is that there wasn't anything in it that checks some of the other boxes that people think of with Appalachia in terms of alcoholism or opioid abuse. You know, I had I had great parents. My mom did leave. That's a whole part of the story. But my dad was just this incredibly hard worker who started working in the woods when he was 12 and determined that I was going to do something different with my life. So he actually, this is a really interesting part. He had me in workbooks when I was four years old, getting ready for kindergarten, (laughs) such that by the time I started Mrs. Oliver's kindergarten class, I was in a fifth grade math and a sixth grade reading level. What? (laughs) Yeah. Just because when I finished one, he'd start me in the next one. And we just kept going because he did not want me to have his experience, which was he felt really unprepared in school, which he took as a sign of he wasn't very smart and he fell behind, which is not true at all. He's actually very, very smart, but nobody ever spoke that life into him. Yeah. So I feel like I even like went down a whole other road. Um, What were we originally going for? Well, no, that was perfect. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. And just from an observer and speaking to kind of watching the dynamics, whenever I go to Jamie's family, you know, there's this sort of struggle and maybe not betrayal, Mm -hmm. but going back to the place where you grew up and being where you are now, it almost seems like there's some struggle where you might want to motivate or bring, you know, bring some of your childhood with you and bring the people with you when the people may not be ready to kind of embrace that. Or maybe they don't even want to. For me, it's been, it's kind of difficult for me because I thought that like my siblings would want to kind of come out of the trailer park and my little sister, Leah, I'll never forget. She said, you know, she can't wait to have her own trailer one day and she does Mm. live in a trailer and she just feels more comfortable in a trailer. And so for me, I'm like, but don't you want more? But she doesn't. She's very happy and content with the way she's living. And so I've had to learn that just because I wanted more and I wanted out of that quote unquote cycle, she was comfortable and happy there. Do you have any type of experience with that? Yeah. I mean, I feel like if I tried to move my dad to Connecticut, (laughs) he would be gone in a week. Like he he has no desire. Like my version of probably helping him or bringing him along will be to build a cabin for him in West Virginia, even further away from people where people don't bother him. (laughs) But, you know, I think, gosh, there is this interesting kind of like, you know, going back to Doug's question there for a second, I think it's, it's a really intentional line to walk and people have done it really well where I'm from in West Virginia. I think of a Brad Paisley or a Jennifer Garner or somebody like that, a, a Homer Hickam, where I don't think the people of West Virginia are like, you left the state, you're dead to us or anything like that. I think they love seeing people from West Virginia go out and do beautiful things. And there's very much an attitude of like, once a West Virginian, always a West Virginian, you're always welcome here. 
Um, I think when people start to feel a little bit betrayed is when you leave and you either forget where you came from or you try to pretend like that's not part of your story or you leave and then you start like kind of having public opinions about everything they're sort of like doing wrong or what they need to fix. And right. I think that goes back to what you're saying, Jamie, like to them, they don't see themselves the way that the outside looking in sees. They see the hardworking, they see the good people, they see the good hearts, the integrity, they see the simple, beautiful way of living, the nature that they have around them, you know, the wild rivers and the mountains and just one of the most beautiful places ever. And so I think as long as you leave, but you appreciate where you came from, then it doesn't feel like a betrayal generally. For me, the betrayal specifically started to feel like, gosh, how do you write a book about going from the trailer to Yale Law without some implied yeah. um, opinion that the trailer is bad and the Yale Law is good, you know? Or or that like, gosh, look, look at what I came from, like this tension of telling about where you came from without painting it in a negative light because it wasn't all bad. There was plenty of good. Right. Um, so I think it's as long as you kind of like balance that and you tell the truth while showing the people of your area with dignity and not as a people to be pitied, I think right. then they're okay with it. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better. That's got to be like a tough balance when, especially when your story is from like a trailer to Yale. Well, I think it's very similar to the feeling that some people had with my wife Jamie's book when that came out. It can be taken as look at how my life was and then look at my life now. And the tone that I got from it was, this is a possibility for anybody. And this is an inspiring and supposed to be a motivating tale. It's not Mm. saying anything's bad about what's behind me, what anything bad about what's being present. And I think sometimes the story, it's tough to really get that sort of tone mixed in with the words that, you know, that people are reading is this is just an inspiring tale. And this is what drove me and motivated me without it seeming like you're betraying your past. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Doug, that's so good. And I never wanted the message to be like, I got out and went to Yale Law. You too can. Um, And sort of like not acknowledging like how unusual or rare or like the combination of just like the fact that they were maybe looking for somebody who had a story like mine in that particular year. Like I could not have forced that to happen. There's, I can work really hard. I can get the grades. I can drive towards something, but I never wanted it to feel like you know, like the Elwood's version of the story, like what, like it's hard, you know, I wanted to really be honest about, like you're saying, it's okay if that's not the version of success for you. Like this is just a story about making peace with your story and then going out and using the giftings you've been given to serve people wherever that is. Yeah, that's perfect. One last question I have for you is a topic that I know that you focus heavily on and it's forgiveness and how you can play that into so many different relationships. What advice Mm. do you have on reconciling relationships, whether they be with family members or partners? Because I honestly, Mm. I could could use some of this advice myself. So I'm I'm, I'm all yours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first thing I'll say, the first thing that was life-changing for me is the book Boundaries from Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. Townsend. And they draw this really beautiful distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. And they say that forgiveness is an inside job. It's a decision that you alone make and you do it to a certain extent, maybe a large extent for yourself. You do it to free your heart, to free your mind, to stop drinking poison and hoping it hurts the other person. And forgiveness is about kind of this untying of your heart. And um, Shauna Nequist, who's one of my favorite authors, has an analogy or an imagery in one of her books where she has to wake up every single day and she imagines this friend who hurt her and there's a giant, like almost like cartoon hook. And she has to visually take that friend and pick them up off the hook and let them off the hook 
day after day after day that forgiveness is not an instant. It's an ongoing process. Mm. And then the reconciliation part is a two-party job. It's a two-person job. To go from forgiveness to reconciliation requires that the other person owns up to the behavior. They've repented and turned away from the behavior. Um, Repent just means to kind of like turn around and go the other direction. And that they have actually changed and that they're coming to the table saying, I did do this and it was wrong and I'm sorry and it won't continue to happen. Okay. So so kind of draw that distinction between like, do the first for your own heart, for your own peace of mind. And then the second is a maybe, maybe it comes to that. I was going to say, because what if the person doesn't necessarily own up to their flaws or Mm. even change their behavior? I mean, I think it's okay to protect your heart and your family from toxic behavior and toxic people. And I do think that there has to be an element. I think that a huge component of it, of why it was able to happen for me is, you know, and I talk about in the book that grace kind of went from this intellectual idea of, well, this is how this works and this is what we're supposed to believe to something that I actually kind of like let sink in and dig down and grow roots into my heart and that grace does have the power to heal things your human mind could never understand. And so on a practical level for people who are listening and maybe like grace is not their jam, I would say one of the things I learned through this process, because draft one of dirt could not have been more different than the version of draft you'll hold in your hands. Mm -hmm. And I call those the difference between those two drafts. I call it, but God, but you could call it grace. You could call it the conversations that happened between draft one and draft two, where I actually did like a three hour phone call with my mom. And I learned things I never knew about her story and like how she saw her leaving And there's this moment on the phone call I write about in the book where it's like, there's still time. I'm still here and you're still here and we're still family. And she does actually say like leaving was one of the worst mistakes of her life. And she talks about why she did it. She thought she was improving the situation for her family, but she said, I feel like I ended up losing my family in the process. Wow, that's so interesting. I I I think honestly, the last thing I'll say on that is I think there's a lot of beauty in time. Time has a way of softening things that felt really like stone. And, you know, as my parents get older and they get, they have health problems and things like that, it was important for me in writing this book and in just going through like those conversations to not rule out reconciliation. Yeah. So I would say like, just don't rule it out. It doesn't have to be this instant, but maybe just like begin to open your heart to it, your mind to it. Yeah. I love that advice. It couldn't be better. I mean, it's easier said than done, especially when you've Mm -hmm. been hurt time and time again. But for anyone listening, like it really does. I feel like when Mary says forgiveness is for you, it is so, so true. I wish I could talk to you all day, Mary. I feel like you're filled with like nuggets of wisdom. And I got to tell you, I am really, truly excited to read your book. I can't wait for it to come out. When again, does your book finally hit the shelves? September 15th, September 15th, which is, oh my gosh, going to be here before we know it. Oh my gosh. Uh, Maybe when this is airing, it already will. I don't know. But yeah, it's um, thebookdirts.com is the general website for it, but we've actually put together a special website for your listeners, thebookdirts.com slash Jamie Doug. And so make sure you get the the in there, three words, thebookdirt slash Jamie Doug. Love that. That's so sweet. I didn't know that you put together a page. That's so sweet. And then if anyone wants to find you in any other way, where could they find you to kind of keep up with you? Yeah. So um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Mary Morantz, M-A-R-Y-M-A-R-A-N-T-Z. Um, MaryMorantz.com is the general website where you can find the podcast, which is the Mary Morantz Show. 
would say those are those are the main places I'm hanging out. Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time out to come on the podcast and chat with us a little bit about, you know, your past and what inspired you to make it through and also like filling us with nuggets of wisdom. I am so thankful for that. It was such a great chat with you, Mary. You guys too. Thank you so much. Okay. I absolutely love Mary. I feel like we have so much in common. I mean, obviously she grew up in a trailer. I grew up in a trailer. She grew up with one parent. I grew up with one parent. Obviously she had a dad and I had a mom, but anyways. And also like, I feel like her dad, I love how her dad just like really encouraged her to shine and to grow. And sometimes I do wonder if my family, if they think that I think that I'm something else. And I obviously, I truly don't. And I like almost annoy them because I'm always like, come down and visit. I want to come up there and visit you. And they're like, girl, like I have family, I have things to do. But you know, I, I don't know. I just always want them to know that even though I've taken such a turn in my life, like I love them so much and I respect them right where they're at and what they choose for their life. And anyways, so I just feel like Mary and I have so much in common. Like we're just two people who, for whatever reason, like cannot settle for the norm or like just average. Like we just want to work, work, work and and kind of like get better and better and better for ourselves and for our family. But anyways, like I said, I absolutely love that interview. If you want to read the book Dirt at this point, as you know, we pre-recorded that interview and now I'm sharing the outro of this later and I have actually read the book and it is so inspiring. So definitely recommend pre-ordering it. I know it's available everywhere books are sold. So if you're looking for a nice, inspiring story, highly recommend that. And next week... Oh, next week is going to be such a fun podcast because we are answering all of your assumptions about us. I put it out on Instagram, you know, like to say like, what are your assumptions about us? We're going to answer them and see like what's true and what's not. And one of the first things that came in because I was watching it was that I don't put out and I wanted to be like, girlfriend, no, I don't. So there's the first assumption already answered. I don't put out. I have had so many, like this vagina has been through some tearing. Let's just say, let's just put it like that. Like it has been, I mean, you know, TMI, but it's true. Like I had nine pound, four ounce baby just came out. And plus after that, I had a colposcopy. Plus after that, I had a leap procedure. Yeah. This vagina has like gone through a lot. I don't really want a penis inside it right now. Not going to (laughs) lie. So no, I don't put out. That's the first assumption. Next week I will share. I mean, clearly we're wide open books, but next week I'll share even more assumptions and I'll answer them for you, whether or not they're true or not. And Doug will be with me, of course. So we'll see you guys next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please let us know what you like. Leave us a five-star review. And we love reading them. Of course, we love giving you what you want. If you want more Married at First Sight, let us know because we kind of took a detour from that. But I just don't know what it is that you guys want the most of. And so we're trying to fulfill all of your needs. (laughs) All right, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.